Paul in Romans, in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, talks about the parts of the body. In, in the King James, it says there are some of our parts that are more comely. That means ugly. <laughs> and with many of us, our feet are not the most prettiest part of us. So we like to not just cover them up for convenience sake, but because they're not the most beautiful part of us. And some of us, some of you may have physical challenges with your feet, you know, corns and bunions and all kinds of stuff that can be available out there that make using your feet and walking on them. So your feet can actually be, instead of a blessing, can be a problem, but they're help, they're necessary. But the Bible has something to say about feet, and we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to look at your feet and how to make them beautiful, gorgeous feet. Praise God. That sounds good, I think. What we're looking at in Romans chapter 10 is how the gospel is spread. We're in a series that's on the gospel and, and because that is why we're here. We've looked at why is the church here. And this is true of any church, not just Faith Christian Center. Different churches have different parts in this role, but all of the churches are, are to be a part of this role. It's the only reason why we exist. We don't exist so that I can have a job. I had a well-paying prosperous job as a lawyer in Boston before I ever was called into the ministry. And so I'm not in this position because I need a job. And this church is not here because so that we can have a nice building, and it's not here so we can have a place to meet on Sunday morning and get warm in the wintertime and cool in the summertime. It's not here so we can feel good about ourselves because we've done some good thing on Sunday morning. This church is here because God has a purpose that God wants to carry out. In the, in the, in the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples, after, after honoring God, it's the, next, the next concept that Jesus taught was your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus, if you look at the end of his life, he says the only reason I, only reason I existed was to do my Father's will. The only reason I was here to do his will. He said, I only ever spoke what he told me to speak. And he only ever did what I saw him doing. So Jesus was totally committed to his Father's will every moment of every day. And that's where God is calling us to. But, but to start there, we need to understand what the general purpose is. And we've been looking at that because we saw that Jesus gave that to his disciples as he was being, before he was being ascended into heaven. And you see that in two places, Mark chapter 16, and that's the main one we've looked at, starting in verse 15. We're not going to turn there where he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Matthew goes on and says, make disciples of all nations. And we'll look at that down the road. But the first part is to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. We've looked a little bit at the word go. There's more we can see in that. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But we've looked at what this gospel is that we're to be preaching. We've seen that it means good news. And we've just heard Pastor Kirk talk about and read some scriptures about, uh, about God is a good God. Aren't you glad he's a good God since he's all-powerful and all-knowing? God is a good God. God is a gracious God. He's a patient God, aren't you? I know I'm glad he's patient. He's good and He's patient and He's kind, but He's also righteous and holy. And so we've looked at the good news as something that God wants to tell people that's good. Now, good news ought to be wonderful to tell people. And that means when we've held back and we've struggled with it, it's because somewhere inside we've either lost touch with what's good about that news or maybe we've never really experienced the goodness of that news, the release and the, and the, and the, and the wonderful uh, life that comes with that good news. So we've looked at that. But now we're looking, what does it mean to go into all the world and preach it? Because we have to talk about this because the, the word preach conjures up in most of our minds somebody standing behind a pulpit or on television and, you know, pointing their finger or yelling or screaming or making us feel guilty. Or, but it's somehow it's, you know, preaching from the pulpit or preaching from a street corner. But the word means much more than that. It's much, more, it's much broader than that. Because we're all called to be preachers. That doesn't mean you're called to stand behind a pulpit. But we're all called, because the word means to proclaim. And we'll look a little bit more at that today. So in order to do that, we understand that, that God has, a, has, a, has a, a, a designed way that this gospel is to be, work. And if we don't understand that, what will happen is uh, we, we, it, will, it won't work in our lives. And what we've begun to learn is there's two sides to this. There's a side that God has to do. And that side you and I can't do. And then there's a part of this that we have to do, and God won't do that. In fact, we'll see today if we get far enough. In some ways, He can't do that. So it's important to find out what God's part is in, in declaring the gospel and what's our part in that. 
And we've seen that, 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 that in, in the beginning of this chapter, which is written primarily to the Israelites by saying uh, that they, they had a passion for God, a zeal for God, but they didn't have the knowledge of how to receive it because they were trying to establish their own righteousness, they wouldn't submit to the righteousness of God. And what we've seen is Paul's talking there that the only way God has designed for man to be able to receive this righteousness, to stand in God's presence, because God is a righteous and a holy God. And in order to be in His family, in order to be in His presence, in order to be in heaven, you have to be as righteous and as holy as He is. And obviously none of us can do that on our own. But there's something in our flesh, there's something in the pride of life that wants to contribute something so I can take a little bit of credit about what I have brought into this transaction with God. And God gave the law to the children of Israel to show them that they couldn't do it. To show them that they could not measure up if they were going to do it on their own effort. So that they were in a position to realize, I need God's grace to do this so that they would receive it the only way God has ordained to do that, and that's to receive the free gift of righteousness which comes through Christ. And we receive that by faith. It's given by God's grace, but it's received by our faith, our believing it. And so what the, Jew, what the Israelites refused to do is to submit to the simplicity of just receiving something as a free gift. It's, just, it's hard to receive a free gift when you haven't contributed something to that. So we have to come to the end of ourselves to realize how absolutely desperate we are. And, and even sitting here, I've been praying this, this week about how, you know, how I'm still, how still I have some sense of, you know, that I'm contributing something. We don't realize how absolutely dependent upon God we are. Every breath you breathe is a gift. Every beat of your heart is a gift. Life itself, just the life that's within you. I'm not talking about the spiritual life. Just the physical life in you, God created that. And yes, I know your parents came together and you were conceived in your mother's womb, but the life that came into that cell, those two cells that came together, God created that life. And that life belongs to Him because He's the Creator. So every moment we're alive, every breath we breathe, everything we have has been given to us as a free gift by God. We earned none of it. So we can take credit for none of it. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are saved by grace through faith. The by grace is God's part. God, as an act of grace, did not give us what we deserved, but gave us what we did not deserve, His righteousness. But that free gift is received by faith, not in myself, but by faith in God and what He has done and what He has given. So that's what we've looked at. And now it talks about this process here in Romans chapter 10. And we've gone down and we've seen that Paul talk, says that, that the, the, the righteousness that's received by faith, which is what we're talking about, speaks this way. Don't go up into heaven and call Christ down. Don't go down into the abyss, that's hell, and bring Him up. But the Word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. And what Paul's saying there is that God's done everything He can do. He sent His Son down from heaven. He died on that cross. He went into hell. He was raised from the dead. There's nothing more God can do. He's brought your salvation to everyone's mouth right here. And the, that's, just, that's God's part. That's as far as He can go. That's the impossible part. There's no way you could, to, could earn that or produce that. But the side of it that our part is responding to that. And Paul says that word to respond, that word that brings that salvation now into your life is as near as your mouth and your heart, which means there's something you have to believe in your heart and something you have to confess with your mouth. And that confession is not just words. It is actually a commitment that you're making publicly, a, a public commitment of your life to Christ. And that's where it is. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. And we've looked at, we took that apart a little bit and say, believe in your heart that He raised Him from the dead means you have not just something, you, this is not just a ceremony you go through where you say, yes, I, I, you know, I, I said, I believe in my heart God raised Him from the dead and I confess with my mouth, Jesus Lord, and that's it, so I can now go do whatever I want to do. No, that confession is He's now Lord. And Lord means... He's now boss. 
Go over into Romans 6. Don't turn there, but if you were to go over into Romans 6, you see Paul talks about people struggling with this and says, don't you understand that when you came to Christ, you died? Galatians 2.20, Paul says about himself, I have been crucified with Christ. Me, what I want to do. Rulership over my life has been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ that now lives in me. So we looked at his lordship means he's boss. I no longer am boss over my life. I'm no longer king in my own kingdom. I never was. I just thought I was. But I've given my life to Him means, we use that expression, well, I gave my life to the Lord. Think about what that means. Think about what that means. If you gave your car to your son or you gave your car, you'd understand it's not on your driveway anymore unless he lives at home with you. He now has the keys. So if you want to use it, you've got to ask His permission to use what used to be your car. So if we gave our life to Him, we use these words so casually, as if we joined a club. If I gave my life to Him, it's no longer mine. And that's what Paul says, don't you understand? You're no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Live your life in a way that is glorifying and if it's in your body, it's so other people can see. And we're, we're headed towards what that means. Alright. So with a heart man believes unto righteousness, verse 10 says, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. We're going to go on now. Verse 11. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on Him will not be put ashamed or disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over, is over, overall is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 11 says, Whoever believes in Him shall not be put to shame, will not be disappointed. If you call upon Him to save you, he will not fail you. He will do his part. In fact, he has done it. And then verse 12 says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. In other words, God's not going to look at you and say, because you're a Jew, because you're Greek, because you're black, because you're white, because you're old, because you're young, because you don't fit into this class, you don't fit into this class. No, it's available to everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So what Paul's talking about here is God's grace, God's love, what God's paid for, He has made available to all and brought it as close as your mouth and your heart. He's brought it as close as He can get it. He can't get any closer. Verse 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul is quoting Joel chapter 2. We're not going to go there. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is the foundation now for what we're going to look at about what our role is. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? It's a little hard for us in our culture to understand, but if you go back in the Old Testament, it talks about they called upon the Lord, or they called upon the name of the Lord. And, and, and I've heard some people teach, well, that means to me, Jesus! Well, that's calling on the name of the Lord. But if I just call Jesus and then just go on about my life the way I always have, I've just said a name. The word called upon is an interesting word because that word is the same word that Paul uses when he says, in, when he's being tried, and they finally say, look, we can't find any reason to keep you. And Paul says, no, I appeal to to Caesar because Paul knew because Jesus had told him that he was ultimately going to testify to, about the Lord in front of Caesar the emperor of all of the known world in that area at that time and so Paul appeals to Caesar and the word appeal there is the same word as call upon now think of what it means to appeal to somebody I mean I've got a, my was a lawyer for 23 years and what in a, in a hearing we've got lawyers here in a hearing, if you lose your case, the judge finds against you, in most cases, you have a right to appeal to the next level. And when you appeal to them, you are asking them to change something. You are now calling upon them 
to do something for you, to help you because you just had a bad verdict. And if we appear before God on our own, you're going to get a bad verdict. If you, if you are to stand before the judge of all man, and we all will at some point, and he hands down his verdict based on how you lived your life on your own, I can tell you ahead of time, we already know, because the verdict's in, the verdict is guilty as charged. And so what this word is saying, because I recognize that I'm guilty as charged, I'm going to appeal my case to a higher court. I'm going to appeal to, to, a, to, to a, a high priest who has gone before me and paid the price for my guilt. And he now stands and sits at the right end of God to argue my case before him. I'm going to appeal my case to him. So the word appeal, the word call upon, means to rely on actually what it really means is Romans 8 and 9, what we just talked about, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. So it it refers to, to call upon, isn't just words out of our mouth, it is the heart call to rely upon someone to help me to do something I can't do myself. Everybody with me so far? All right, most of, some of you are. Okay, you'll catch up. Okay. The legal term, it's a legal term that means to appeal to someone else on your behalf or in favor of you. All right. So that's what whoever does this shall be saved. There's no formula in here. There's no set prayer in here. And there, there are prayers. We have them in the back of some publications we have. You know, the, the, the prayer of salvation. And it's not saying the right words. It's meaning it in your heart as best you can. But if you really mean it in your heart, you're going to say something. And so now we're going to learn how this happens. Because there are elements to this. And we have a part to play in this. All right, verse 14. So what it says in verse 13 is, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Look at verse 14. But how shall they call on Him and whom they've not believed? How are they going to call on somebody they don't believe exists? How are they going to call on somebody unless they know how they're going to be accepted? How are they going to call on somebody unless they know the court's in session? How are they going to call on somebody unless they know they're not going to listen? No, they know they're going to listen. So there's something, in order for people to respond by calling out for help, they have to believe something. And Hebrews 11, we're not going to turn there, but Hebrews 11.6 tells us what it is. For without faith, it's impossible to believe God. For in order to come to God or call upon God, you must believe two things. So in order to call upon God to save you, you must believe two things, Hebrews 11.6 tells us. Number one, you must believe that He is, that He exists, that He's real. I was sharing, witnessing to a relative a few days ago. And, and, and what he's struggling with is, he said, but I don't believe He exists. I don't believe He's real. And so that was, the, that was the, the, the first roadblock we had because if you don't believe He's real, you're not going to call upon Him. They're just empty words. You must believe that He exists and number two, that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That means that He'll answer your call. When you call upon Him, He's there and He will respond favorably. He will answer your call. He won't trick you. He won't play games with you. You won't be disappointed, as it says a verse or so earlier. That's absolutely vital to believe in. I'll just share you a moment of my own testimony, and I've shared it before. But when I was a very successful lawyer, and things were going well, making more money than we could spend, and I had a, a beautiful wife, and at that point, two lovely children, an older boy, a younger girl, beautiful house in a nice, prosperous community outside of Boston, but my life was empty inside. And I'm not going to go through the whole story. But then through a series of events, God began to bring people into our lives that were Christians, and, 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 and I know they began to pray for me, for us. They had to because things just began to open to me. And, and I began to struggle and I began to really feel a weight of conviction upon me. Because I, I knew God was after me, but I was afraid. And so I was strong. I, mean, I was in agony at times. And I remember one night when this all comes to a head, after everybody else had gone to bed, I was trying to read this Bible and it just it wouldn't, it doesn't, wouldn't do anything to me. It was words, and I could understand most of the words, but it wasn't doing anything to me until I came to a scripture where Jesus says, Be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And all of a sudden I realized, I can't do that. 
I was a good husband, I thought. I was a good father, I thought. I was even, you know, an honest lawyer. I was, did everything I knew that was right. I was a deacon in our church. I, was, I wasn't perfect, but I was a good person compared to everybody else that I knew. Then I saw God's standard was, no, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And literally the words out of my mouth, I can't do that. I need somebody to save me. And then I heard what I said. God has to bring each of us to that point. It comes different ways, different methods. And now I'm under conviction. And now I know, and, and, I, and I was struggling. I mean, I went through this for months. I was not running away from God. I thought I was running away from Him. But finally, as this came to a head, what I realized is I wasn't running away from Him. I was afraid to be disappointed. I was afraid to call upon the name of the Lord and find out He wasn't real. And I didn't realize that. That was the grace of God to finally break through and show me, this is what you're afraid of, son. You're afraid if you call upon me, I won't be there. You're afraid that Jesus isn't really the Savior. You're afraid He's not really alive today. That He was, <clears throat> excuse me, an historical figure. And when I became aware of that, I began to struggle with that until finally one night it came to a head. And this is where the light of God, this is, I know, was a result of prayers. This is why your prayers are so important. Keep praying for that loved one. Keep praying for that, whoever it is on, on your heart. Keep praying. Don't give up. Keep after it. 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 Because it looked like I was never going to come to that place. And in that night, at that moment in time, it's like the door inside of my heart opened a little bit. And what I saw was this truth. This is all it was. I suddenly realized I'm in such agony over this that I'm better off finding out that he's not real than living under this agony the rest of my life. That's all it was. That was the great revelation of faith I had. But that's all it took. It just opened the door because then I was willing to put my big toe in a little bit and say these words, Jesus, this is literally what I said, I don't know whether you're real or not. And I'm afraid to find out, but I'm going to take this step. If you are real, I'm asking you to come into my life. That's all I did, sincerely in my heart. But the moment I did that, I knew something fluttered in. And he fluttered in through this little tiny crack I gave him. That's all I took was this little tiny opening, this little crack. But see, that word was near me, and even in my mouth and heart. His love, his grace for me was hovering around me, just waiting for that little bit of opening of my will to say, all right, I'm going to step out. I don't know if this is going to work, but here, here... Take this shot at me, and he, that something flooded in me. I didn't understand what it was. I just knew. I started jumping around the room saying, He's real, He's real, He's real. I'm still in my vest from my three-piece suit with all my dignity going out the window, which is where it needed to go. He's real, He's real, He's real, He's real. Oh, well, I couldn't go to sleep. I felt like a teenager that had just fallen in love for the first time. I woke up in the morning and it's still there overflowing out of me. My mind doesn't understand what's happened to me. And it may be different from you. You may not have the same experience. But my point is, it was right, he was right here. He was right here. But I had to call upon him. I had to call upon him. I had to call upon him. And I could call upon him even though I wasn't sure. See, it doesn't take absolute steadfast faith. You can't really have that until He's in you. That's the gift of faith He gave me to believe. Just that little bit, because He knew what it took for me. Isn't that wonderful? He knows you so well. What it's just going to take. And that was 38 years ago. And I love Him more today than I did back then. So how are they going to believe? How are they going to call upon Him, verse 14? whom they've not believed. And how are going to they believe in Him whom they've not heard? Now, verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So, how are they going to hear, how are they going to believe if they haven't heard? Why? Because the way we believe is by hearing the Word of God. That's what's happening right now. As you're hearing the Word of God, it is the fuel. The Word of God is a seed. Jesus taught that in Matthew chapter 13. The Word of God is a seed, and the sower sows that seed into people's hearts. And different hearts are in different conditions. 
which is why he talks about the different types of soil. Some seed that, fo- so- that some soil that seed did nothing because the soil was so hard it couldn't even get planted. Some soil was, 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 there was soil there, but it wasn't very deep, so it didn't take deep root, so it didn't last under pressure. Some soil was deep enough and it took root, but there were other things growing in there. And it took away the nutrition so it didn't grow a healthy fruit. And then some, the soil was in wonderful condition and it grew a wonderful fruit, a wonderful plant that produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. So the seed, the Word of God is a seed in the kingdom of heaven. A seed which has in it all the potential for life and the fruit that's to be born is in that seed, but it has to be planted and it has to be watered. And so the hearing of the Word is the sowing of a seed into your heart, and then once that's sown, hearing it again is a watering of that seed, and a watering of that seed, so that seed inside of you can begin to grow and to begin to change. You'll never convince somebody to receive Christ intellectually. You can answer their questions, which will help them to believe, but it is, a, it is a work of God in their hearts and the process is the seed gets sown in there and then gets watered and if the right conditions are there it will germinate and it will and that doesn't just stop with salvation that stops with your spouse that's worked with your spouse so wives if there's something in your husband that's just off don't preach to him if he's not coming to church don't preach to him don't drag him here you just pray pray you pray you pray and allow the Holy Spirit to do in their heart, and this is true of any of us, what you can't do with your own efforts. Pray. Pray. That waters the seed. That waters the seed. Watering the seed. Watering the seed. So the principle here, and we use it for so many other areas also, but it's spoken here specifically when it comes to salvation. That, that, that in order to call upon the name of the Lord you have to believe. And the way we learn to believe is by hearing the Word. So now let's go back up to verse 14 again. How shall they call upon Him whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in Him whom they've not heard? So if they don't hear, they can't believe. Now it's astounding to me, but, but a number of years ago we did an evangelistic crusade here and we had a a speaker come in and he trained us how to do some things and sent us out on assignments and, and I, I began to talk to some young some waiters young, young people in their 20s and I was absolutely shocked that some of them and, and this is I'm finding out is very widely true don't know who Jesus is now I can understand maybe in some third world country but we're talking about the United States we're talking about the Northeast where we pride ourselves in education and some of these young people, I mean they're college students and they've never, they don't know who Jesus is. I'm not saying they don't, whether they believe Him or not, they don't know who He is. And then I began to realize, wait a minute, I'm looking at that from the perspective of a generation that was raised where, where the church was part of our culture, whether people really believed it and followed it or not. And many of you were. But then we've had a gen- two, several generations where, where God can't be mentioned in church school, where anything about God has to be has been taken out of school, and now we have a generation that's raising another generation, and it's even further removed from that, so it's not quite so astounding that they haven't heard. Then you realize, you see, the Barna Report, which is a Christian uh, uh, Gallup poll, that goes around and has did a survey of what parts of the country are the most biblically illiterate. Number one, New Bedford, Massachusetts to Providence, Rhode Island. Number one. Biblically illiterate don't believe in the Bible. Number one. My brothers and sisters, we're on a mission field. So how are they going to call upon Him if they haven't heard? They're not hearing it in school. They're not hearing it among their friends. They're not hearing it from television. Most likely they're not hearing it on Facebook. 
everything that has access to them, they're not hearing it from. So if they're not hearing it, how can they have faith enough to believe that He exists, let alone that He loves them and will call upon their name? How will they believe in Him of whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Now here's where we would read that and think, well, we need a good preacher. We need, we need, to, get, we need to get them in church so they can hear the preacher. The word preacher, as I mentioned earlier, does not mean a professional minister. The word actually is the same word that was used as a herald. Remember Christmas? Heart the herald angels sing. That wasn't their f- name. That was a description of what they came and did. And it's hard for us to grasp it except if you've seen, you know, old movies from that time. Because if an important personage was coming into your community, or if there was going to be an announcement from the king or from the prime minister of some, some new edict or some new rule, they would not just post it on a bulletin board and the king wouldn't just kind of come in town. They would, if he was coming, if a dignitary was coming into your area or through your town, they would send ahead of them people called heralds. And they would, they would blow trumpets or make noise. Why? To call people's attention to come out and see that this important personage was coming to your city. But not just that. If there was an announcement, if the king had issued some edict, and when that was going to be posted or announced, there would be heralds come and blow trumpets and make noise so that you would come out, come here, the king, come here, what's to be said. A special announcement today. There would be, there would be this, a loud noise, a, a, a trumpet or a sound, and that would be an announcement of what was going to happen. And so that's what this word comes from. It comes from the word to, pro, to herald or proclaim um, an official message from a, a king or a magistrate or a high official. It implies, listen carefully, it implies that the person that is announcing or, or declaring, it implies they have the same authority of the one that sent them to announce it. It implies that that herald that little short guy with the funny costume on and the trumpet has the same authority of the king to make that announcement, to say the king is coming, to say that this is the new rule, or whatever it is. We are his messengers. But think about it. We are his messengers. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said, All authority, and all authority, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. I got no problem believing that. But then he says, You go forth. You go forth and preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations. Those are connected together. We want to operate in the authority of the believer. We want to operate in the authority that we've been given over Satan, but that authority has been given to us for a purpose in the course on, on uh, uh, spiritual authority that, that is going to be started soon. It's a, it's a course I wrote a number of years ago. And what God gave me was understanding is what is authority? This authority is a tool that, that I give to people to carry out their responsibility. It's not a thing in and of itself. Authority is not something to be, to be used as a badge of honor or, or a sign of your accomplishment. Authority is just a tool to carry out what your responsibility you've been given. And here's a great example of that. Jesus said, I've given all my authority in heaven and on earth to the church. Earlier he said, whatever you bind on earth will be as if it's bound in heaven. In other words, you bind something on earth, we'll back it up in the heavenly realm, which is where the issues are. You lose something in this earth, or in this earth, I'll make sure it's loose in the spiritual realm. I'll back you up. I'll back up what you do when you exercise that authority. I'll back it up because I've given you that authority to my church, which, by the way, is my body. So the head doesn't have an authority that the rest of the body doesn't have. But here's where the church misses it. That authority's been given to us for a purpose. 
And that purpose is to go into all the world and to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. And the reason the church doesn't experience the authority that we have as believers more is we're trying to get the authority without the responsibility. That's like having a teenager that wants the keys to the car, but they don't want to pay for the insurance. They don't want to be home on time. They want to do what they want to do. They just want the car. Give me the, give me the authority over it. I just don't want any responsibility for it. I don't put gas in it. I just, you, Dad, did you fill it up? Because now I'm going to go drive it. I'm not picking on our teenagers. Because we're all acting like that when it comes to God. We're trying to enjoy the benefits of living in the household without accepting the responsibility that goes with being a son and a daughter of the father of that household. How shall they hear without a preacher? So it means that we've been given the authority that are behind the words that we're to declare. What that means is the issue is not about us. We're just heralds. We're just ones announcing He's coming. We're ones announcing this is what He's done for you. This is who He is. Jesus is the Lord. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whether you believe it or not, that's up to you. I care whether you believe it or not. I'm just announcing something. And see, what happens is, and I'm guilty of this as much as the rest of us, we take it personally if somebody doesn't accept what we tell them. Like they've re- as if they've rejected us. Well, you know, I'm a little tentative because I'm not a very bold person, so, you know, what, what, what if they say no? Well, they didn't say no to you. You're just a herald. You're just the guy with the trumpet saying he's coming. You're, you're just a messenger sent to announce something, to pass a message on. You're just a messenger, so am I. We're just a messenger. So if they reject the message, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the one that sent the message. In fact, Jesus said, when they reject me, it's not me, it's my Father they're rejecting. So Jesus understood that. Jesus understood He was a messenger also. He was a messenger for His Father. And He tells us, He said, and if they reject me, they're going to reject you also. They're going to see people treat you. If if you've got people you work around and you work with, you know, and they know you're a Christian and you, you know, joke with them, you like them, you share your stories, what you're going through, what they're going through and all that stuff, you know, say, I had a great time in church, you know, all that, you know, and it's like, that's wonderful, but the moment you mention Jesus, you can talk about God, but the moment you mention Jesus, everything changes. Why? Because now they won't look at you now they'll look at what they think of Him. So now they won't respond or react to you based on what they think of you. They've now joined you to Him, so they'll treat you the way they treated Him. But Jesus said, they did that with me. And He said, that's why you rejoice over it. That's a sign that you belong to me. That's why in the first century, the church rejoiced in their persecution. That they were found worthy to be persecuted because it was a sign they belonged to Him. They were being identified with Him. They weren't being identified with the world. And we've had it so comfortably. We've had the favor of, the, of our nation, the favor of people in the past. So there's been no issue of this because they like us as well as the, whether they like Him or not. So why do I care whether they like Him? They like us. And now we're finding that's changing. And that's good because it's going to purify the church. It's going to purify us make us make decisions that we need to make. Okay, now let's get into this a little bit because we may not finish this today. Verse 15, okay, so verse 14 says, how are they going to hear unless there's a preacher? Verse 15, and how shall they preach unless they're sent? How shall they preach unless they're sent? That's what he's doing now. And now he's going to quote Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of them who preach or proclaim the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings. This is a quote from Isaiah 52. How shall they preach unless they're sent? A herald could not go out on his own and just say, you know what, I've got a good message today. I'm going to preach this message. I'm going to go tell. In the same way, we can't do that unless we're sent. But my brothers and sisters, we're sent. We've been sent. Say, when were we sent? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Mark chapter 16, Matthew chapter 28. The church has been 
sent. It's just that we're not going yet. But we've been sent. He's waiting to back us up as we go and do what we're called to do, which is to proclaim the gospel. How beautiful on the mountain. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings, good news, the gospel, who bring glad tidings, good news of good things. Now I looked up this word beautiful. It's a very interesting word. It's the word horeos, horeos, which has two meanings to it. It comes from the Greek word hora, which means hour or the time, the time we're in. So it means timely, on time. So in one sense, this Isaiah, whom Paul is quoting, says, How timely are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. But there's another meaning of that word, which is the word that's used when a beautiful flower blooms. Now, you plant a, a azalea or, 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 or a, a, a rhododendron. They're beautiful. Rhododendron. I've got rhododendron, small rhododendron in our bush, bush in our yard. But I love it. It's around May, April and May. When all these, there's some down in Bristol area. There's some places with gorgeous big rhododendron bushes that all year long are just green leaves. In the winter, the leaves curl up like that to protect themselves. But as the sun begins to come earlier in the day and the day becomes warmer, those leaves begin to unfold and come out. And then earlier, and it's amazing how early it happens, you'll begin to see this bud begin to come out like that. And there's a bud there, but, but it's just a bud. It's not that particularly beautiful. But, but see, when I know, but I know enough to know what's inside that bud. So that's a sign to me spring's very close. Spring's coming because that bud's there. But it waits. It waits until the right time. It waits until the conditions are right. But boy, when those conditions are right, what happens with that? It begins, to op- it begins to open up and reveal the real essence of what that whole rhododendron bush has been like all year. Why it's here. What its value is. It begins to open up and the beauty of the, of the, of the essence of what that rhododendron bush is now begins to shine forth for all around to enjoy and take pleasure in. And it's good tidings to me because it's a sign spring is now here. All that wonderful time of year to enjoy the newness and the, re- the, the re- renewing of things is here and I can relax. It's not going to snow anymore because the rhododendron b- bl- blooms are out. And some come out in different bushes earlier than others. But when it comes out, that's the whole reason that bush exists is to bring that bloom forth and enjoy. And that's what the word beautiful means. Think about that in terms of you. Before the foundation of the world, God saw you and chose you and loved you and planned for you before the foundation of the world. And he had in his heart and mind, I know what they're going to do. They're going to mess up because they're humans. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my own son that I love so dearly. I'm going to send him to the earth and it may be 2,000 years before you're born, but I'm going to send him for you He's going to walk on this earth. He's going to explain these things. And then he's going to go to a cross and die a miserable, horrible death. And I'm going to take their sin, even though they've never committed it yet. And I'm going to put it on him. And I'm going to pour out my righteous judgment for that sin on my son on that cross, even though they haven't committed it yet, because I know they will. And then I'm going to raise him from the dead to defeat sin for them, to defeat the power of sin and death for them. And then at the right time, I'm going to woo them and draw them. I'm going to get people that I put on their heart to pray for them and, and, to, and, to, and to intercede for them and, and call upon them whether they even know who they are so that I can, have, I can bring this gospel to them and closer to them so that they'll be open to receive. And then you come along into someone's life. And this is why you exist, to bloom. This is why you're here. This is why this church is here, to bloom, to blossom to bring forth the fruit and the fragrance that comes with that and to begin to unfold and begin to come out. But see, that has to have the right conditions, the warmth and the right temperature and the right sunlight. And that's the Spirit of God moving in and He's moving, my friends. 
He's moving. The condition's coming. He's moving. He's moving by His sovereign will. He's moving because there are people praying. He's moving and He's changing the spiritual atmosphere so that what's happening is people that have been timid and people that have been shy and people that have been afraid are going to begin to, those blossoms are beginning to show. And God's going to bring you at just the right place in front of the right people and you're going to begin to unfold. And the beauty, not of you, of the Creator in you is going to become out. This is why Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. I bow my knees before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is called. That you would strengthen the church in its inner man. That's our spirit. That Christ may be able to dwell. I used to pray that Christ may be formed. And so one time I was reading my Bible, I said, that's not what it says. He's formed in me. That he may be able to dwell, live his life in me and through me. That being rooted and grounded in that love, the church may come to know the breadth and length and height and depth and to know by experience the love of God, love of Christ that passes understanding. That's the church blossoming. And what the blossom reveals is the fragrance of Christ. The beautiful fragrance that draws people we have in the back here some honeysuckle bushes. In the springtime, when they start blossoming, I know they're blossoming because I can smell them. And I'll go out at the end of the day and I go, where is it? Because I'm not sure I can recognize the tree, but my smell's drawing me. Fragrance of Christ that draws the bees. It draws him. It draws people. That's what this word beautiful means. So to you, your feet may look ugly. You may not want us to put pictures of your feet up there. But when you bring the good news to someone, when you bring the good news to someone, we're going to see next week somebody that good news were brought to them, and they got on their knees to kiss their feet. It doesn't say they kissed their feet, but they got on their knees to worship them. Why? Because that good news literally will transform someone's life. Not just here, but eternally. Remove the weight of the guilt and the pressure of life. Remove the loneliness and the hurt and the fear and the pain that comes from trying to just live in this life and do my best. And gives a hope for the future because if you have only hope in this world, Paul says, you are of all men to be miserable. If the only place you have hope in is in this world, you're in trouble. I've had the opportunity lately to go through some very challenging times with some people with issues in their life. And almost everyone has said to me, I don't know how people that don't know the Lord go through these things. I don't know how they face life. And it may well get so bad, people's hearts will fail. The Bible says in the last days, people's hearts will just literally give out on them for fear. Why? Because of all you have to hope in is this world. is your Facebook buddies. Your 401k stock market, your job, whatever it is, your car, whatever it is, your life that you've invested your life in, if that's all you have hope in, you are to be pitied because they will all fail you. But God has given us a hope through Christ Jesus. God has given us a hope, not just a hope for the future, but a release of the burden of the cares of life, a release of the burden of the guilt. Thirty-eight years ago, that, came, that happened in my life. That door opened, and I smelled the blossom. Somebody praying. People I know had shared the gospel with me, the good news, and that came into my life. And I'm trusting God that I will begin to blossom and shine forth the light and the glory and the peace of God. This is what we're called to do. What we're going to do is I'm going to end here. It's a little early, but it's okay. I'm going to end here. I've never gotten in trouble for that. Because what I'm going to do is get into next week a story. Not, well, not next week. Marilyn will be here. I'm going to get into a story that gives us an example of this. And I'll give you a clue. It's in Acts chapter 10. And the story is where God is going to, for the first time, bring the gospel to the Gentiles. 
and he brings it to a man who's been praying and fasting and asking God for it. And there's all kinds of supernatural activity of God doing what he can do, but it couldn't happen unless a man went from where he was to where the person that was asking and spoke the words. And so we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your love and your grace and your goodness. We thank you, Father, that this good news that we're talking about is only good because you're, you're a good God. And the only hope we have is because you've been good to us. And we bring our lives before you this morning, Father, for you know everyone that's in this room. You know the deep secrets of our heart, even things we don't know. Because your word says there's nothing hidden from you. Everything is open before you in the sight of our God. And that's good news because we can't trust ourselves. Our intentions are sometimes not right. And sometimes we want to hide and make excuses before you and, and explain away things when we just need to be honest and open before you. And our prayer this morning, Father, is by the power of your Spirit. We give you permission for your Spirit to come into our hearts and into our minds and begin to open the eyes of our understanding just to see ourselves as you see us. That may seem scary at first because we may not want you to see certain things but you see them already. And Father, you're calling us to open our hearts so that your truth may shine in there so that you may free us and forgive us and redeem us and save us. Father, we confess to you that your church, this church, we individually, have in many ways failed to do what we're here to do. We've existed our own lives, we've existed as a church for many other reasons, to bless ourselves, to even be blessings to other people. But we've lived for many other reasons so often other than to satisfy your will and what you put us here to do. And I pray this morning, Father, that you would begin to call us by your Spirit. Call us in our hearts together to be a people that is of one mind and of one heart to do your will. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name.